We're back, and welcome to Theology and Reality. I'm your regular host, Joshua Madden, Professor and Lector of Catholic Theology at Blackfriars in Oxford, if this is your first time listening to the podcast. And today's episode is the final episode of our series on spiritual theology. The first half of the pod focuses on St. Ignatius of Antioch and his approach to the spiritual life, spiritual warfare, and living a life in imitation of Christ. The second half is taken up with a response I gave to a question that was asked of me on how we're meant to receive Ignatius's comments on being submissive to spiritual attack, especially when we want to be sensitive to people who deal with issues like domestic violence or abuse or who happen to deal with tragedy in their life. In other words, how do we deal with the tragedy and violence in the world that we might be on the receiving end of, and how do we act in imitation of Christ without justifying it or making excuses for it? I edited out the question for the sake of that person's anonymity, but it prompted some good discussion, and I wanted to include that in the episode because I thought it was interesting. I was recovering from a cold at the time, however, and my voice and breathing is a bit raspy, so I hope you'll forgive me for that. And as a final note, I want to take this time to tell you about our upcoming series we're doing for Lent this year, a podcast series on G.K. Chesterton's classic book, Orthodoxy. Over the course of those episodes, I'll be asking a lot of questions. Why are you a Christian? What possible reason could you have to hold fast to faith in a world that finds the ideas of God and religion strange and irrational? One of G.K. Chesterton's most beloved works, Orthodoxy is a short book that takes us as readers through a series of thought experiments and hypotheses that demonstrate the truth and wonder of the Christian faith. I'll be taking us through the book chapter by chapter, highlighting Chesterton's most interesting ideas, his most persuasive arguments, and his best quotes. In each episode, you'll be invited to learn more about one of the 20th century's most unique thinkers and to explore how Chesterton's words can inspire you this Lenten season. I hope you'll tune in to check those out. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't yet, and be sure to check out all of our other content at the Theology and Reality website, theologyandreality.substack.com. Thanks so much for listening. done more sort of macro theoretical work the whole time in my goal with these last two lectures were to just look at individual figures and their thought so today what i want to do is look at ignatius of antioch and not so much do a sort of systematic investigation of ignatius's thought or or letter as a whole but more look at ignatius's thought about martyrdom and union with God through his letters, especially the letter to the Romans. I'll reference plenty of other passages from his other letters, but it seemed a bit, it seemed kind of unwieldy to include all of the quotations or things that I wanted to include. Um, and so this is just more if you want to follow along, if I you know reference something in here. Ignatius's letter to the Romans, right? He's writing, he's writing to the Christians in Rome in order to attempt to stave off any attempt at rescue that they might attempt for him. So Ignatius has this great desire for martyrdom, which in his words will come about by his disappearance from the world. So he talks about his martyrdom as a disappearance from the world. In his letter to the Magnesians, in Magnesians 1.3, he says, if we endure all the abuse of the ruler of this eon and escape, we shall attain God. So there's a lot in that little quotation that 
he will include in other letters. So this idea of right endure right the Christian's duty and responsibility and privilege even to endure kind of demonic assault. Right? And he calls him the the ruler of this eon or you know age, however you want to translate that. There's a number of different ways. So you just continuing to use eon kind of makes sense. And this aspect of escape to attain God, he uses that language a lot. Um, so attaining to God is his way of speaking about the state of union that comes about within the cosmic perspective of the Christian's participation in spiritual combat. So if we attempt to look at what Ignatius means by what kind of creatures are redeemed and called to union with God, he has a number of different things to say. So for Ignatius, the created universe that is set and held in motion by God, um, who wills all things, he's created a universe in which visible and invisible powers are at work. So Ignatius is clear there's both a material and a spiritual realm, and that many of these forces, both material and spiritual, are aligned against God and the kingdom that Christ came to proclaim. So there are those who belong to the old kingdom, and they are ruled over by the ruler of this eon. So then you know, he talks, calls him that in almost in almost every letter. He refers to the devil as the ruler of this age or the ruler of this eon, this this uh, sphere almost. So due to the nature of what human beings are, says Ignatius, right? We stand in the middle. We hang between heaven and earth, and we unite the two realms, both the material and the spiritual. Um, perfectly, it's Christ who unites the two realms of matter and spirit. But human beings in general are this kind of link, this curious kind of creature that hang between heaven and earth. And depending on how human beings live, right, they'll either be directed upward or directed downwards. In his letter to the Smyrnaeans, Ignatius, is, Ignatius refers to his captors as beasts in human form because they've sort of lowered themselves in their activity, right, in how they act. They've abandoned the truth, right? His captors have uh, live in purely carnal fashion. And so Ignatius is able to refer to them as beasts. I think in is it in I think it's in Romans. I can't quite recall at the moment. Right? He he talks about the the leopards, essentially referring to the Romans themselves. And so it's possible for Ignatius that men abandon their spiritual status by the manner of life that they live. Now, related to this, for instance, in his letter to the Ephesians, Ignatius talks about redemption occurring in both a fleshly and spiritual manner. So he will use these terms, fleshly and spiritual, in conjunction with one another often. For instance, he he speaks of the bishop being a creature of flesh and spirit, since it's the bishop's job to hold sway and power over both material and spiritual powers. His language, right, you, you might remind you a little bit of Paul, for instance. Uh, he Ignatius prefers the terms flesh and spirit, so sarx and pneuma, rather than soul and body, suke and soma. So by, by, using, by using flesh and spirit rather than soul and body, Ignatius seems to be attempting to take focus away from the kind of purely anthropological 
concern of the you know what human beings are made of of body and soul and by focusing on flesh and spirit right he can kind of narrow his focus in a more in, into the more redemptive scope so instead of talking about human beings as body and soul what are they but by talking about flesh and spirit it's a more it's a more dynamic way of talking it's a way of referring to the role and the power of the redemption in relation to the human person rather than just a purely kind of anthropological concern that you know, you might find later especially in you know scholastic uh scholastic teaching for instance now in when, when talking about flesh and spirit when when ignatius talks about the flesh on its own he'll talk about the mode of living according to the flesh which can be on the one hand it can be a means of distinguishing simply the material world from the invisible spiritual world so he calls onesimus a bishop in the flesh for the ephesian church and he talks about Christ submitting to the Father according to the flesh in his letter to the Magnesians. So clearly those are not, you know, derogatory or things that he would think are would be negative, right? Just so to call Onesimus a bishop in the flesh and Jesus Jesus' submission according to the flesh, obviously not a negative thing. Uh, more often, however, it seems to be a way using this language of flesh is a way of referring to the fallen world that neglects the spiritual dimension of Reality. So in that sense, it can be a little more Pauline in his usage. So, for instance, here in, in Romans, in, in Romans 2, he talks about loving others according to the flesh that can be a way of failing in true love. So if they, if the Romans, love him according to the flesh in that sense, right, they're loving him in kind of a purely worldly way, right? They're thinking only about you know, what we would, what we would love by nature. And so if they, if they love him according to the flesh, they're not thinking in a spiritual way. And so they would be failing him in love in that way. So flesh and spirit, the mode of life, right? It's flesh and spirit together. When he talks about this, he's referring to the mode of life to which the whole person is elevated. Thanks to the supernatural gift of divine life provided by incorporation into Christ. In Ephesians 8, so I didn't give you this. In Ephesians 8, 2, he says this. He says, those who are fleshly cannot do spiritual things, nor can those who are spiritual do fleshly things. In the same way, faith cannot practice the things that belong to unbelief, nor can unbelief practice the things that belong to faith. But even those things you do according to the flesh are spiritual. For you do all things in Jesus Christ. All right, so notice he, he distinguishes between fleshly and spiritual. And yet in the end, even those things we do according to the flesh are spiritual because of our particular way of life. So the spiritual life actually sanctifies all bodily activity. Right? It doesn't attempt to dissociate or flee from the body in the material world. So uh, we'll talk about um, Ignatius's relation to Gnosticism in a little bit, at least for a moment, but you can see there, right, clearly that's a very uh, de, maybe denostifying, right, kind of concept, this idea that we, you wouldn't flee from the body, and those things you do according to the flesh even are spiritual. So this, this particular kind of union between flesh and spirit is important in Ignatius's worldview in which he's in certain ways kind of combating a more Gnostic 
worldview, even if some of his language uh, sounds very Gnostic. So to be authentic, as he says in his letter to the Smyrnaeans, right, Christian love needs to be both fleshly and spiritual. So again, sort of you have to take what he says when he's talking about the flesh and figure out is, is this a kind of a negative way, right, where doing something according to the flesh would be something you wouldn't want to do, or is it something, is he talking about flesh and spirit together in which the spirit animates the flesh and the flesh would be something good? Uh, there's a similar parallel to what Ignatius does in um, in Letter to the Trallians, for instance, he talks about doing things according to men. So it's a different way of talking about the same kind of thing. He says, you know, doing things according to men is opposed to what it means to live according to Jesus Christ. So in that sense, it's also a very kind of Pauline way of thinking, right? The wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God, doing things according to men, doing things according to Christ Jesus. And so Christian perfection is achieved by imitating and following Christ both in flesh and spirit. So in Romans 5 through 6, for instance, he talks about the need for one to die into Jesus Christ so as to attain Jesus Christ. And it's this that allows Ignatius, as he says, to be a man in truth. So this this dying into Christ to attain Christ allows Ignatius to be a genuine human being. In this sense, so not, you know, again, not this kind of separation of, you know, nature and grace or flesh and spirit, right? But it's this living to Christ, dying to Christ that allows Ignatius to be what he actually should be, to be a man. Paul, right? So again, you know, Paul uses the flesh almost purely in a kind of pejorative sense. But Ignatius, on the other hand, seems to have encountered the docetist heretics, right? So the heresy of docetism. So those who would claim that Christ only seemed to have a true body. It was kind of illusion. And so in in writing these letters, Ignatius seems to want to maintain a consistent manner of speaking about the body and the flesh in a way that recognizes its intrinsic goodness, while also making sure it's viewed in an appropriate and subordinate manner. So Ignatius is not as um, he's not as negative about the flesh or what would be human, because he, you know, as as opposed to Paul, right, who's doing something very particular. Ignatius is already very aware of his sort of pastoral duties as a bishop and wants to make sure he's not, you know, giving the impression that being a man, being a human, being of the flesh or according to the flesh would be intrinsically bad. That there's something real about that. So. In his pursuit of Christian perfection, um, Ignatius is seeking to be with God. And at certain times, it seems to undermine his anthropology. So, for instance, in Romans 6, he says, he says, do not give back to the world one who wishes to belong to God. Speaking to the Romans about himself. right? Don't give back to the world one who wishes to belong to God, nor entice him with matter. Permit me to receive pure light. When I arrive there, I will be a man. And so um, you can see how that kind of language, right, might might really sound Gnostic, right? Don't entice me with the material. I need to receive pure light, right? Then, then when I arrive to Christ by receiving this pure light, then I'll be a real human being. Um, so he needs to resist the enticement of matter, 
to receive this pure light where the true humanity will be revealed. So it's, like I said, right, it sounds a bit Gnostic, right? But if we ask the question with, with Ignatius, what's he trying to do? What's he trying to say here? So it makes sense to ask about the kind of cosmos we inhabit, right? So it makes sense, okay, well, what, is, what does Ignatius actually think about where human beings exist within the world? Um, in his letter to the Ephesians, for instance, Ignatius gives this gives a kind of cre- a very sort of short, pithy, creedal formula in Ephesians 18. And he says, he says, our God, Jesus, the Christ was conceived by Mary, according to the economy of God from both the seed of David and the Holy Spirit. He was born and baptized in order that by his passion, he might cleanse the water. So in that, right, and it's not, not only a really good kind of summary of what Christ's activity in public ministry does, but um, the incarnation for Ignatius, the life and work of Christ, have an effect not just on humanity, but on creation itself and on the physical world, right? So Christ's baptism cleanses the water, a right? very kind of common patristic theme. So he continues a few verses later in Ephesians 19, and he says, he says, these escaped the notice of the ruler of this eon, the virginity of Mary and her childbirth, as also the death of the Lord. Three mysteries of a cry which were accomplished in the silence of God. So in these few verses at the end of eight, you know, Ephesians 18 and beginning of Ephesians 19, Ignatius seems to be continuing to place the incarnation in direct relation to the physical world. So in grounding this in the person of Mary and her conception, and it's interestingly, right, he's, he sets Mary in direct kind of contradistinction to the devil, which is kind of an interesting thing on its own. Um, and you, know, you ask, well, what, is, what does Ignatius mean by this? He keeps using this word eon, right? The ruler of this eon, what does he mean? Um, it can be either, or there's a way of interpreting it either kind of a spatio-temporal or non-temporal way. So it can be either, right, this particular age. Um, so you're not sure if, 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 he's, if Ignatius is talking about the time period where the ruler, sort of the devil is the ruler, or if it's the actual sort of physical space of this particular sphere, right, of, of the globe, this part of the cosmos. So it makes sense to continue in Ephesians 19. This is So in the rest of Ephesians 19 reads as follows. Ignatius asks, How then was he, Christ, manifested to the eons, a star shone in the heavens, bright beyond all the stars, its light was indescribable, and its newness caused astonishment. All the rest of the stars, together with the sun and the moon, formed a chorus around the star, and there was consternation regarding the source of the newness that was so dissimilar to them. Consequently, all magic and every spell were being broken. The ignorance that accompanies malice was vanishing. The old kingdom was being destroyed being ruined because God was manifesting himself humanly for the newness of eternal life. And that which had been perfected with God was receiving its beginning, whence all things were in commotion because the destruction of death was being taken care of. So that's a lot. But Ignatius, in that, right, we see that he's sensitive to the cosmic significance of the Christ event. And yet at the same time wants to keep attention on the way that spiritual warfare plays out in the human sphere on earth. Right? So there's this, there's this combat 
that is waged with the devil. And the combat waged by the devil, right, this is to be taken seriously, while at the same time the Christian is called to endure these spiritual attacks, which is kind of an interesting thing that Ignatius Ignatius does. There's no there's not so much a sense of being kind of an, an active right life of prayer that combats the devil. It's our sort of reception of spiritual attack that is our spiritual combat. In so again, if we I think I referred to this earlier, maybe fifteen minutes ago or so. We attain union, according to Ignatius, with Christ and the Father if we endure all that the prince of this world puts to us. And if we do this, we shall escape and attain unto God. And so as we saw in this, so we read through this passage in Ephesians, these few verses here, the devil's Achilles heel, if we want to use that terminology, seems to be this ignorance that accompanies malice. So Ignatius had said, the, the ignorance that accompanies malice was vanishing the old kingdom being destroyed because God is manifesting himself in in the incarnation. So this ignorance that accompanies malice, there's a way that the Christian can imitate Christ in letting the malice of the evil one fall upon them and ultimately prove to be fruitless when united in love and faith to Christ. So for Ignatius, this spiritual combat in large part revolves around imitating Christ in the kind of passivity to spiritual attack. So as Christ was silent and allowed himself to be beaten and bruised and attacked and eventually killed, and in that, that's how he defeated the powers of evil and darkness. For Ignatius, the Christian themselves need to allow that to happen to them too. And when that occurs to them, or any questions so far? Yeah, no, that's an interesting, that's an interesting thought. I think, and in, in not that this is a new problem, right? But at least it's it's been pretty clear the last few decades. You know, at least in you know, in America, for instance, since all the, you know, was it the early two thousands? You know, all the news that came out of Boston, and obviously everything else that's happened over the last twenty years with McCarrick and everything else that's going on. You know, so there is a sense in which. Yeah, we're very sensitive, I think, to that maybe early 20th century kind of mode of just viewing um, right, the hierarchy, for instance, as just, well, there's just, you have a general attitude of respect and obedience and subservience, and then you kind of just, you know, whatever happens, happens, and hopefully it's not so bad, and you kind of get over it. And as you're saying, that there's also this new sense in which we're much more sensitive and aware of, right, you know, domestic violence, things like this. So, yeah, I would never, I think, I think, I think what Ignatius is saying is extremely relevant to the spiritual life now still, because I think that it's true. But yeah, I can can imagine it being necessary to qualify this idea of um, suffering um, what's, how does he put it here? Um, you know, it's, it's enduring spiritual attack, um, being a spiritual warfare and not one where, oh, this also means that you're meant to just simply 
receive and submit to and receive like like literal violence too by someone who shouldn't be acting this way to you so i think that that would probably be important to separate those two things right because i think yeah ignatius in his what he what he's doing obviously he's doing in specific reference now in in other letters it's, it's a little different but even even outside of romans right he's writing all of these letters while being dragged to Rome. So even the ones that aren't being written to Rome are always being written with this at the forefront of his mind because that's, that's what's happening to him. Um, so he views this execution, which that's good, this is going to be his martyrdom. This is his way of attaining to God. And in his circumstances, right, he's able to, to view this as um, both a literal spiritual attack, which I assume, you know, he, he would undergo in his own heart and also view, right. The Romans as these leopards, these beasts who are being, you know, sent by the devil and everything else. Um, but everything, I think everything needs to be nuanced because he, I mean, he talks about the Roman Christians kind of that way too, right. He, he warns them, you know, don't to be essentially don't be agents of the devil by attempting to love me according to a human fashion and getting me off. Right. So he would even view the Roman Christians who would be loving him in as kind of assisting the devil if they do this wrong thing. So on the one hand, I think that you're definitely right. There's a certain sense, especially with with few things where our care for, you know, these particular groups, you know, the you know, the widow, the orphan, the woman, the child. Right. Especially in particular contexts like, you know, I don't think it would be. Uh, an intelligent thing to say, well, God is clearly allowing you to, you know, be, you know, to be tempted by and to be challenged by your husband beating you every night, right? That's not what you would want to say. Um, but you also wouldn't go want to go too far in the other direction and say that, right, spiritual attack only comes purely spiritually and is never something that happens like through other people at all. Um, and I think... I mean, for the most part, I would kind of expect spiritually mature people to understand that. So I guess it would just depend on your audience how much you need to kind of explain that this kind of language of enduring spiritual attack is not meant to be kind of an endorsement of just, you know, shut up and take whatever abuse or violence or uncomfortable situation you're in, because that's definitely not, it's definitely not true. Yeah, I do think it's really complicated and it is, it is... It's, it's thin ice, especially in today's world. Um, you see it like I, I tend to see it. Um, it appears kind of every year around like St. Philomena's feast day. You see this, these discussions of, well, do we want, you know, it's in, it's kind of a modern hang up, you know, this idea, well, would we want to celebrate the virtue of someone who like lost their life fighting to preserve their purity? Like, if someone was attacked and they were raped that, you know, that's, that's not a, a blight on them, right? It's not like they, Oh, they, they wanted that to happen. So why would we celebrate the fighting against it? If we also, if we also would say well, those who are victimized are also not sinful, right? So this idea that there can be a kind of heroic virtue that goes above and beyond what's actually essentially required by justice can be uncomfortable sometimes. I think for a lot of people, because they would want to say, well, 
you know, I, I shouldn't have to lose my life fighting against that kind of thing, right? Because it's unjust to begin with. And you say, well, that's it's definitely true. It's definitely, it's, that's 100% true. And yet at the same time, right, there is a kind of virtue that would be heroic and um, what's, what's the word? Super erogatory in that sense, right? in a very particular way. And I think Ignatius... Ignatius should make us a little uncomfortable in that way, too, because there's a sense in which the church clearly teaches it's a bad idea to go around searching, seeking out martyrdom, right? If you're attempting to consistently put yourself in situations, right? I'm going to fly, I'm gonna, like, I'm here in England, I'm in my studies, but I'm going to purposely fly over to right, go and try and, you know, preach and evangelize in the most sort of radical, violent places, hoping that I get martyred and killed for that. The church, I think, would see that as an imprudent decision, right? And yet at the same time, I think you might have a lot of people in the 21st century who would read Ignatius saying, I know you can totally get me off and take care of this, but don't, right? I want to be martyred. And they might think that's a little bizarre. Right? His, he's really seeking this death out. Is this something that he, is this something Ignatius is doing that's imprudent, right? And I think you could have someone make, make a genuinely uh, plausible case that, that Ignatius is imprudent in this desire and what he's doing. And yet at the same time, I think ultimately what he's doing is sort of this super erogatory thing that is a particular witness that is beautiful in its own sense. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a good point what you're saying. I think it's definitely true. And so, yeah, I mean, Ignatius probably isn't for everyone, right? It's probably not in the same way that, you know, there's there's plenty of, I think, spiritual writers that aren't for everyone. Um, and that, you know, some spiritual writers can be even harmful to a soul, depending on their particular state or where they are. Yeah, I think it's a good point. So it probably just depends on the, the audience as to how you want to nuance what what you're talking about or what Ignatius is, is talking about as far as how far you're willing to go or even uh, participate in your own suffering, I guess. Because there's probably a way in which you could say, yeah, they, they definitely represent something very iconic and true and the kind of this sort of peak, you know, peak Christian virtue or something. Um, but their particular cases would be thing, you know, a lot of the time we think of the saints and we think, oh, those are, you know, they're, they're saints for this reason and they do this and they live this way and they said these things and they had these heroic virtues that you want to imitate, etc. cetera. Um, and then there's saints like Philomena, like Ignatius, where... There's plenty of other, there's plenty of things about the two of them that you would want to imitate. The kind of, the one thing though that you might not want, that you wouldn't want to seek out and imitate is that ultimate sacrifice, right? So imitating Ignatius's charity and his faith and his uh, patience, all really great. Imitating his um, almost unhinged zeal for his own dissolution, dismemberment, Probably not, not, it's not something I think you would want to to imitate or tell other people that they should want to imitate too. So in the same way with, you know, any any of the virgin martyrs, for instance, right? You know, imitate everything else about them. The one thing you don't want to purposely seek out to imitate is your own, you know, assault and violation and death, right? That's, so that's kind of the, I think that's probably where we draw the line. Now, I think you would want to, the one thing you would want to say, well, you should never want to imitate it. You should want to imitate it if 
you're ever put in that situation, I think, right? If you want to purposely seek out opportunities for patience and charity and faith and all of these things, they can provide us examples of how to act, however, if we should ever find ourselves facing that sort of ultimate crisis moment, though, right? If I were ever in a situation where I'm being led to my own martyrdom, I would really hope that I could do and look at it like Ignatius does, right? I would really, you know, speaking now, right, from a position of comfort, I would really want to be like Ignatius. So I think that's probably where you where you draw the line, right? Don't 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 go seek out this one thing. You don't want to do that. But if you are ever to be put into that situation, maybe pray for the grace to be like them and to handle it that way. Yeah. We operate, you know, thanks to where we exist in history, right? We operate under this illusion most of the time that we're under complete control over everything. And so if when things happen that are out of our control, we either don't want to admit that that's true or we try and find a way out of it, right? Or we try and always look for a way in which our voluntariness can sort of win the day, right? This idea that things can just happen to us. Usually, you know, usually something bad has to happen to remind us of that. It's usually um, some kind of tragedy or illness or sickness. I mean, as a parent, you know, seeing your, your children do things or get sick, for instance, you know, you just get reminded now because it's now it's like, you know, well, I mean, what are the chances my wife dies in childbirth? I'm very small. What are the chances that, you know, what's the child mortality rate? It's super low in everything else. Right. But, you know, if, you know, if my, you know, if Megan and I had been living a hundred years ago, if it had been the 19th century and we'd had our first child, I'd probably been a widow, the very first kid that came around because of, you know, the complications that we dealt with with our first, with our first kid. Um, modern medicine sort of saved the day, but sort of it's things like that. It's things like tragedy and abuse and violence that remind us that that we are really kind of we're much more passive than we than we tend to think that we are. And so, this idea that you could actually endure something that you never should have to endure. And that could st- be itself a kind of means, you know, to an end, right? That you shouldn't have to go through again, right? You shouldn't have to endure this sorrow, this suffering. But if you do, and if you do it in an intentional way, right, then it can be clearly a, a means of all kinds of grace and illumination and profit and merit and all that, all that kind of thing. Yeah. So exactly. I mean, both both things have to be side by side and you just kind of hope and pray that whoever you're talking to can kind of receive that in in a positive positive way yeah because you don't want to say well it profits you nothing if you go through this suffering because you i mean i think you think you nullify the gospel if you affirm that just doesn't make any sense um all right let's see a couple more minutes before i before we have to go so i mean trying to finish this section on i guess ignatius's Right. Cosmology, how you deal with the devil and everything else. Um, so Ignatius, right, 
clearly history and the cosmos are teleologically ordered. You know, he sees the old kingdom is passing away in order to make room for a new one. And in this new kingdom, right, human beings occupy a kind of unique place in this cosmos, in this new kingdom. So the most important cosmic events, Ignatius wants to remind us, aren't taking place somewhere else, right, or up in the heavens or among the stars, right? It's this big cosmos. But for Ignatius, or he reminds the, the Romans and everyone else, right, that what's most important cosmically is actually something that's already happened and it happened here on Earth. So it's not something happening out there. It's not something in the future. It's already happened and it happened right here on Earth with Christ. And so it's the incarnation that's the key for Ignatius. And it's the incarnation's novelty that actually throws the cosmos into a kind of commotion since it's an assault in Ignatius's language. It's an assault on the old kingdom in the way that things uh, have, have, you know, and the way things have been ever since the since the fall, essentially, um, and even before the fall, because you right, says recall that the cosmos itself is already darkened on account of the fall of angel, of the angels, or right? even before Adam and Eve, right? And so for Ignatius, ever since the angelic fall, right, the ruler of the eon comes to earth, and the incarnation is a kind of secret assault on the way that this old kingdom works. So the incarnation, it's something like, um, right, I don't know, something like the, like the D-Day invasion, right? This secret surprise kind of assault on the powers of darkness. And so in imitation of Christ, the Christian, for Ignatius, can use this same tactic by imitating Christ's virtues, right? So the Christian imitating, imitating Christ's humility, imitating his meekness, the fact that Christ comes in the form of a servant are all of these ways that the Christian can subvert the powers of the old kingdom. Uh, in his letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 13, for instance, Ignatius says, when you come together frequently, talking about the Christian community, the powers of Satan are thrown down and his destructiveness is undone by your unanimity in the faith. Nothing is better than peace by which all warfare of those in heaven and on earth is nullified. And similarly, here in Romans, in Romans 5, one attains God in enduring the abuse of the kingdom of evil. Ignatius says, fire and cross, battles with beasts, mutilation, dismemberment, wrenching of bones, hacking of limbs, grinding up of the whole body, cruel punishments of the devil, let them come upon me. Only let me attain Jesus Christ. Right? So this this physical kind of um, you know it's it's reminiscent a little bit right of Paul's language about right allow right you know beating his own body that he not lose the race right this idea he sees Ignatius sees this on the near horizon right this physical suffering and sorrow that he's going to have to endure. And he basically says, just bring it, bring it on. Like, that's the way that I'm going to attain Christ, right? If I allow that to break over me, that's how I'll attain to Christ. Christ.